Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This episode is recorded on Thursday, January 25th, 2018, starting at 3.54 or 3.53 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 141st episode of the show. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Dr. Safran Rossi about the life and work of the famous Swiss psychiatrist Carl Gustav Jung and her new book, which explores his views on astrology, titled Jung on Astrology. Hi, Safran. Welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited. So we had a little bit of problems getting started today due to <laughs> due to technical issues, but I think we've we've got it together. And I'm really excited about this episode because this is actually a really landmark book or really notable book for a number of reasons that we'll discuss. So first, I wanted to start off just by introducing you to my audience and talking a little bit about your background. So um, could you tell me who you are and where you're from and what your background in this field is? Yeah. Um, so I am a professor of uh, mythology and depth psychology at Pacifica Graduate Institute, um, where I uh, teach um, in uh, a program that focuses on the work of Jung and uh, post-Jungian archetypal theory. Um, and um, I'm also a scholar and a writer and an astrologer. So um, I kind of wear these different aspects of my both sort of scholarly and creative endeavors. And um, Pacifica's in California, which I moved to in 2003 to start graduate school. Um, but I come from New York City. So I'm, I'm an East Coaster originally. Okay. Did you move to so Pacifica is also where uh, Richard Tarnas teaches, and and mm-hmm. a lot of his work has been has sort of revolved around there. Did you move to or go to Pacifica specifically already with some background or interest in astrology, or is that something that came up during the course of your studies there? That actually came later. So I have my PhD in mythological studies. And um, pretty much all my life, I've been very um, interested, and passionate, and curious about mythology and legends. And I and I remember um, when I was in college, and I was studying religious uh, studies and comparative literature. I had this really strong, but at the same time, vague sense that myth and legend and fairy tales were really important, but I didn't know why. I mean, meaning they were important beyond the study of culture and history and literature, but they meant something. Um, But, you know, being 20, 21, I I think, at least for me, my psychological understanding was so nascent um, and not very well developed that it was in applying to graduate school and going to Pacifica and beginning to study mythology from an explicitly depth psychological perspective that that sort of intuitive knowing that I had when I was young really started to fill out um, through my studies. So astrology was always in the background um, Um, but it actually wasn't until I had finished my doctoral dissertation 
and was kind of in that postpartum period after any major creative project um, where I went to a very small lecture that Rick Tarnas was giving in Santa Barbara. It wasn't actually at Pacifica, but hosted through um, people that were related in the community sense. What, and time, listening what to sort him, of time frame was that? Sorry for interrupting. Oh, um, so that was in, so around 2008, 2009. Okay. Um, and, you know, listening to Rick Tarnas talk about the planets in these, uh, in a distinctly archetypal sense, meaning as um, uh, forces of uh, values or styles of consciousness or rhythmic energy patterns, um, I, I, you know, was just blown away. And I realized listening to him that astrology in many ways is the sort of binding bridge between mythology, the study of mythology, um, the narratives, the images, the complexity, and uh, our psychological experience, meaning, you know, how do we make sense of periods of time and, you know, times of crisis and difficulty? And somehow astrology is the most perfect way to bridge those two areas, both the mythic sensibility um, and a sense of the unfolding or deepening of our psychological experience of life. So that that was it. Like Tarnas just kind of like had me recognize, you know, what was a um, a kind of living practice to bridge those two parts, I suppose is another way to put it. Sure, and and that would have been just a what a couple of years after his book Cosmos and Psyche came out. Then, so that's a really right. rich period in terms of you know what he had initiated and what was going on in in that area during that time frame. That's right, and he had come, you know, whenever uh, Rick comes to Pacifica, you know, his conferences sell out. I mean, he's such an amazing speaker and um, and holds that kind of balance between a, a deep love for intellectual and historical inquiry and and at the same time this very expansive feeling for the um sort of archetypal structures or energies that um are embedded within life so it it's it's such it's just an amazing combination of um approaches to the topic. Um, so yeah, sure. Cosmos and Psyche, I would say, is has definitely been a bit of a watershed moment or a watershed publication, you know, in terms of modern astrology, you know, and how we think about it. Right. Well, and, and your story is really interesting to me because I was watching it from the other side of, of the, what, the fence, I don't, I don't know, within the astrological community already and seeing him put out a book where he's explicitly trying to make the case to, you know, modern uh, intellectuals basically that that there's something to astrology and, and it's you know worth paying attention to and, and here's the case for why. And there was mm. always this question at the time. I remember when it came out, I was still at Kepler, and we all sat around at one symposium and read like the New York Times review of it, and we were wondering to what extent it would actually you know bring in. Anybody from academia, or or to what extent it would be viewed as 
compelling or convincing to to anyone. So, so hearing you as a as a story of somebody who came in uh, from academia who already had your PhD and then was in being exposed to that, you know that it did actually um, feel compelling to you and sort of drew you into the field or, or developed led to a, an interest in astrology is really interesting to me. Mm, yeah, it, very much. It's it's it was it was like seeing how all of these theoretical ideas, you know, Jungian ideas about the development of the self or individuation and the way that we use mythology to amplify and personify and really deepen into that process. The way Tarnas looks at astrology, it it holds both ends. Now, after um, you know, having my mind blown by Tarnas. And then I started to do my own research. I mean, of course, I came to the work of other astrologers that were doing this. But yeah, it was it was Tarnas's approach that um, kind of flipped the switch for me. Sure. And yeah. so, and at that point, obviously, you already would have had a pretty deep background in Jung, and that's what you mm. already came into astrology with, was, I'm assuming, was a familiarity with Jung and his work because of your focus on mythology, right? That's right, yeah. So, And not only Jung, but also James Hillman, um, the, the founder of archetypal psychology. So, yeah, so I was coming at astrology with with a with a very strong grounding in those two thinkers' ideas who compl- you know necessitate and almost make primary symbolic languages by which to you know understand the psyche sure sure mm. uh and that leads us then to the sort of topic of this episode which is that you just published uh, a book titled uh, young on astrology which is a a compilation of excerpts of different statements that Jung made in, in writing over the course of his career um, about astrology. And so how did this book come about or what was the starting point of it? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, in in a very like simple, frank way, I, I was really curious about what Jung had written about astrology and kind of wanted an excuse <laughs> to learn <laughs> more about that specifically. Um, and so, as, as no doubt you know, there's nothing like learning a topic. There's no better way to learn something than to be writing about it, right? Or right. to be researching it in depth. So, th- so that was kind of my, my original, um, inspiration, which was, well, what did Jung really have to say? And, and beginning to gather pieces. And um, Routledge, who is the publisher of this book, there's a series of books that have been called the Jung on series. So there's like Jung on alchemy, um, Jung on synchronicity, you know, so these different uh, volumes that um, people have edited to help distill um, his ideas on a particular topic, because he was an incredibly prolific writer. Um and so there's a lot of material um, uh, to to be able to pour through when you're trying to to understand his take um, on a particular idea. Right. This book, and the so, book um, mm. Young on Synchronicity and the Paranormal, uh, mm. was actually assigned reading at Kepler back around 2004, oh. 2005. So you know that was actually a pretty influential book on me. So it's an interesting 
then seeing this as a new addition in that series of of sort of breaking up Young's work on different topics into specific volumes that focus on them. And and this was one that was missing until now, which is what did he actually say about astrology? Right, exactly. And um and making it easier for people to explore that on their own, I think is important. Um and um also I think for me I was really invested in um trying to contribute something in this more um sort of old school academic way like putting together an edited volume of Illuminary's work as a way of helping to establish this topic um in a way that maybe necessarily really hasn't been represented so clearly um if that makes sense like i you know that that this is a volume that people can now assign in curriculum you know whether it's at um a more depth psychologically oriented school or in astrological programs and so that there there's more primary um direct um understanding and exploration of jung's ideas and and that felt that felt like an important contribution to make um yeah, de- so. definitely. I mean, because Jung was such an influential thinker in the 20th century on a number of different fields. And there's, you know, anybody that reads some of his works will see these little bits and pieces and references to astrology and different things, but there's never been a full collection of what he actually said. And, and this very much lets him speak for himself. It's not just, mm. you know, necessarily commentary or you know, picking out different statements and then writing chapters of um, exposition about them. It's it's literally excerpts from his writings that's all in one place so that you can, for the first time, point to or cite something. Uh, if anyone says, you know, that Young practiced astrology, there's actually now a book where, where you can po- point to exactly what, what that means in, in a very literal sense. Right, right. All right, uh, excellent. So, and this is um, you. You actually co-authored this book, and you were the one that first proposed the idea of putting it together, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I had come up on the idea, and I had been sort of, um, you know, sitting on it for a little while, and then Kieran Legrice, who is the co-editor of the volume, um, he joined the faculty um, in the program um, that. Uh, I teach in that we now both teach in um, the Jungian and archetypal studies program at Pacifica. And he had, he joined the faculty. We had known one another. Uh, we were kind of acquaintances, but when he joined the faculty, it just becoming colleagues and um, it just seemed like a really natural project <laughs> to take on together um, given his own um deep study and practice of astrology and um and also to a certain degree um our areas of focus seem very complementary because Kieran who studied at CIIS and was a student of Rick Tarnas's and has published um quite a lot on um the discipline that out of the Rick Tarnas School, Archetypal Cosmology and Astrology. Um, it seemed like a really great fit for us to come together to look at Jung because 
Kieran has a, a particularly kind of philosophical, intellectual history background when it comes to astrology. Like, where does it come from? And what are the various influences and ideas? Um, whereas I come more from the mythopoetic side, uh, the symbolism and um, the, the, the um, kind of roots of the images and their um, sort of literary, you know, expressions and how that comes through. So it, it just seemed like a really good fit and a fun project to take on together and, um, you know, camaraderie <laughs> and, and all of that. So. Yeah, definitely. And he's certainly, he seems like one of the most, if not the most prominent student to come out of or, or to follow, mm. um, in the wake of Tarnus's cosmos and psyche and, and some, the, the sort of school or the approach that he set up with that, it seems like he um, is definitely the, not the main or only representative, but certainly one of the most prominent ones in terms of mm -hmm. the number of books and, and other things that he's published over the past, I guess, decade now. Um, yeah. So I, I can see why that would really make sense or would be a good collaboration in terms of the two of you working on this together. Yeah, exactly. Um, and he just has, a, you know, a wonderful feeling um, for this, um, you know, the the validity, and, and I mean that in the sense of the value of the astrological paradigm um, in relationship to um, life, you know, and, and, and how it, it helps us make conscious and make, you know, sort of um, accessible these deeper um, experiences that we have um, and, and ways to work with them. So, Sure. And, and I, in reading through the book over the past um, week, I was really struck by how much many of the basic um, premises or principles that that school that Tarnas incorporated into his work in Cosmos and Psyche, and then that school of astrology that he sort of set up or that approach um, to archetypal astrology, how many of the foundational principles were things that do seem to go back to Jung or, or that mm -hmm. Jung, you can see him sort of uh, formulating in his writings. And I was kind of struck by that because I I don't know if I had forgotten or it, it would just become not clear how much of that was being drawn from Jung's works or influenced in a very direct way early on and not necessarily by intermediaries like Rudyard or, or later astrologers. Right. So that provides us then with a good transition point, which is basically the purpose of this episode was I wanted to talk to you about the life and work of, of Carl Jung and talk a little bit about who he was. Uh, what he did and why his work is significant, uh, what he thought about astrology, and then finally what his influence was on the astrological tradition. So that's kind of a tall order, but I, I think we can I think we can pull it off. So why don't okay. we start by just <laughs> introducing my audience, assuming that they have no background on who this person is? Tell me a little bit about who he was and, and what time frame he lived in. Okay, so um, Carl Gustav Jung was a Swiss psychiatrist. Um, he was born 1875 and died in 1961. And sidebar, um, Mick Jagger and Carl Jung have the same birthday. 
Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so well, I not, just... Not year, but you mean day and no, month? No. Okay. <laughs> well, I don't know. Mick Jagger does seem to be really, uh, you know, making it last a long century, but... Um, yeah, he right, does seem day. immortal at this point. <laughs> right. So, um, so, yeah. So, Jung was born in 1875 and died in 1961 and um, uh, lived in Switzerland um, his whole life. And... Um, you know, early in his career, he was a colleague of Freud's, which is generally a kind of um, well-known association. But um, Jung and Freud parted ways after a period of intense collaboration, um, uh, mainly over Jung's differing psychological theories, which came to emphasize what we now talk about as the collective unconscious. Right. And that's really important. Their connection mm. is important and notable just from a historical standpoint, just because of who Freud was and what his significance was in founding what essentially became the modern approach to psychology, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, a, a, a depth, a, a psychology that values primarily the existence and the reality of the unconscious. Yeah. Sure. Uh, mm. And and in terms of Freud, I mean, just to, you know, especially for some of our younger listeners who may not have a background in like the history of psychology, psychology mm. in its modern or depth psychology is a relatively recent development, or it's something that I noticed that Jung sort of emphasized a few times mm. in his writing and, and acknowledging and reflecting on his own life and work, how relatively recent depth psychology was as a sort of science or, or development over the course of the past century, right? That's right. And I mean, without wanting to get too complex too early on, I mean, and, and part of the reason why depth psychology is quite nascent and new is that one could argue, as Jung has in, in various places, that with the decline of strong and complete sort of religious containers for people's life experiences, meaning belonging to a religious um, uh, group or, or, you know, living uh, within a kind of religious uh, mythology, um, the breakdown of that in our modern era has led to um, uh, great challenges psychologically for people, where one's moral compass one's uh, sense of values, one's idea about the way the world works or the order of things or the ultimate importance of certain things in losing that, which was, which has been the domain of religious and or spiritual practices, people um, um, began to suffer in a way and couldn't find, um, well, need, need um, help, need, you know, in, in managing some of these um, experiences. So psychology, in a depth psychology, in a way, is a kind of response to these collective um, changes um, that are really unprecedented in the history of humankind. Sure. And and Freud was at the forefront of that and, and laying mm. a lot of what became sort of foundational principles in the late 19th and early 20th century, right? That's right. That's right. Okay. So he's doing that work and he was uh, like 20 about 20 years older than 
Young, and then Young came along at at one point and almost became it seemed like like a protege of Freud or something close to that. Is that maybe taking it too far? No, actually, I think that that's pretty accurate. In in some of the last um, exchanges between Freud and Young uh, in their correspondence, Freud talks about how you know it as if on the eve of Freud sort of anointing Jung as his kind of son and heir to this field of psychology, their um, their parting of ways was kind of planted within the middle of that. So the so the the sense that they were very close, that 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 Freud in some way really saw Jung as stepping in to kind of take the mantle of this uh, field forward, I, I think is quite evident. Sure. And mm. what was the time frame? Cause they, in the, in the, in terms of like the full span of their lives, cause they both lived to be relatively old. They really were only associated for a relatively short span of time, but what, what was that time frame again in terms of when they started, um, talking with each other and when they stopped talking with each other? Oh my goodness. Um, I don't have that at my fingertips, but okay, I think so- that yeah, I, th- I, think I think it was like that, 1906 or 1907, and right to about 1912 or 13. Yeah, so we're talking about mm-hmm. like a, a decade or less than a decade. But it was there was like an explosion as soon as they found each other. Uh, there was like an explosion of correspondence between the two, right? That's right. That's right. And and a sense that I mean now now this this gets into well part of uh, so I think. Part of the the connection between Jung and Freud, if we look at what was going on for Jung or his history, um, it helps us begin to understand why he was drawn to Freud. He Jung went underwent a long apprenticeship working with schizophrenic patients, uh, schizophrenic or psychotic patients at the Bergholzli um, Institute in Switzerland, and that's where he became aware of the mythological or archetypal dimensions of the psyche. And it was also at the Bergholzli that Jung began conducting experiments using things such as the word association test to develop the notion of psychological complexes. So like as he's in, you know, living and working at this, um, you know, institute with, you know, patients that are in in altered states of consciousness, um, and doing his studies, he begins to um, see what Freud is up to in his own work, and I think that's where the link starts to happen because Freud, you know, was working with people who also had, um, uh, you know, very challenging complexes or neuroses that were impeding you know, the living of life, the living of a, you know, a relatively, um, you know, healthy or, or well-adjusted kind of a life. So that, so their finding each other comes from both of their working with um, individuals that are, have kind of profound difficulty, um, and then their studies coming out of that. Sure, and this sort of like developing field of, you know, what did they call it? Like the the talking cure or something in the early twentieth mm-hmm. century. That's right. Yeah, that's Freud called it the talking cure. Yeah. Okay. 
And yeah. so, so they find each other. They have this very productive um, period of of interaction. And uh, eventually, though, they went separate ways. And there, there mm. was like they there was a their differences grew to such extent that they stopped talking with each other. Right? Yeah. I mean, and I think it it just has to do with their their firm convictions around certain um kind of what they understood to be kind of indisputable or primary ideas regarding the psyche and they just had different perspectives on um some of these topics and couldn't sort of find a way um to not <laughs> i mean it it almost feels very alchemical in the way that at some point certain chemicals um, are repelled by one another, right? And it just kind of feels like the, it came to a place where there was a, um, an intense repelling away from the way that each one was really, you know, doing their work and and what, what they were focused on. Sure, yeah, that notion of almost like opposites attract, but then at some point sometimes can conflict so much that they they drive each other away. And and it seemed like part of the Falling out was that Jung had uh, some interests in sort of esoteric and, and spiritual, sort of quasi spiritual type ideas, and often would try to incorporate that into his um, psychological models. Whereas Freud did not, or, or that was not typically something that Freud was incorporating into his work, at least not in the same way that Jung did, right? Right. You know, Jung was always interested in topics that seemed to be outside mainstream thought. So early on, um, like when he was doing his own uh, theses research, he did research on the paranormal. Um, and throughout his career, he was interested in esoteric traditions such as Gnosticism and alchemy. You know, he wrote a book on uh, UFO phenomenon so, you know, he was both a serious scientist and, you know, he was an MD, a doctor, and someone who is extremely interested in the things that challenged the limits of our knowledge. And I think astrology obviously fits into this context. Sure. And th and that's basically where astrology starts coming in, it seems like as far as we know in terms of his writings is that in some of the letters which you guys actually quote um, in this book from very early in his career, I think as early as 1911, he starts talking to Freud or attempting to talk to Freud about astrology and almost convince him that there's something to it and that he thinks it might be useful. And interestingly, from actually from your perspective and your background, he almost seems to, to say that his initial approach or, or reason motivation for looking into it is that he thinks it'll help him in terms of his studies of mythology. Right. Isn't that interesting? I remember the first time I came across that quote. And um, you know, there's something about Jung, and I and I've heard other people share this too, that he has this uh, reading Jung, there's this uncanny way in which he says things that like you know, but maybe you haven't just articulated quite fully. Sure. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, definitely. Um because cause you just feel like you're right there with him and you're like, yes, totally, of course. And I couldn't have said it, but I'm so glad that you did. Um, so in that particular excerpt where he talks about um, 
astrology really being like one of the keys to understanding myth. And of, and of course, we're talking about um, a symbolic sensibility. Um, I think that's, that's right on. Because I mean, if, if we think about one of the, you know, again, for some of the listeners that maybe aren't so um, familiar with Freud, I mean, I think it's kind of common parlance, um, the idea of the Oedipus complex, you know, coming from Freud, as well as the Freudian slip. Um, but what was so groundbreaking about Freud talking about Oedipus in relationship to um, some of his patients' fantasies about incest was that Freud was really curious and privileging the imaginal capacity, meaning the way in which we um, make stories in order to give expression to our particular take on reality. So by talking, by bringing in the Oedipus myth as a way to try to understand patients' experiences of the fantasy of incest or whatever that was, um, he's showing how our psychological experience is in and of itself kind of mythological. Does that make sense? Yeah, uh, and that'll actually lead us into talking about some of his broader, you know, that that section about why his work was significant and some of the theories that he came up with. Mm, and mm -hmm. maybe that would be a good transition point. And then we can come back to, um, you know, talking about his his sort of chronology. Does that does that make sense, or should we keep going with? Yeah, his? no, no, that that's fine. However, yeah, that's absolutely fine. Yeah, because okay. I we we, so we have some of these key ideas that. Um, yeah, to kind of just touch on a little bit. Yeah, well, let's jump into it right now because that'll set a good foundation for the rest of discussing the rest of his career as well as why, you know, perhaps he fell out with Freud. So, um, what were some of the key things that Jung did in terms of his work, um, speaking of it in terms of his entire career and some of the key ideas or theories that he introduced, which, which really characterize it or, or, or are yeah characteristic of it in some way okay so let's so let's probably go back to the, how i mentioned um when jung was at the Holsley doing his apprenticeship he was he was um conducting experiments like the word association test uh which came to help him develop the notion of a psychological complex so complexes or a complex is I think one of the ways to define it is that it's a thematic grouping of psychological contents. For example, memories, emotional responses that usually originate in childhood. So that's why we have these common terms like mother and father complex, right? Like, oh my God, she's got such a father complex. Well, the idea there is that for a person, her, maybe her personal experiences with her father, and then with professors or teachers or authority figures, they, cr they create a kind of um, energy grouping in, in her psyche. And so, there's, so there, it can get triggered um, in relationship to certain experiences. So it's hence, you know, a grouping of psychological contents uh, coming together. 
But what's interesting is that Jung eventually came to understand that archetypal or universal themes lay deeply within our personal complexes. And I think this is one of the doors that opens to considering, you know, astrology. Um, so, right. So what is, yeah. I mean, and that's core to his thinking, the, the notion of, of an archetype. And, the archetype. And mm. what, what is an archetype or what is okay. in, in Jung's thought? How did he formulate or what was his formulation of that concept? Mm, right. Or, or okay. basically so, just what is an archetype if you're explaining it to mm-hmm. somebody who's never heard of the idea before? So an archetype is a formative principle or pattern that shapes our behaviors, our ideas, um, and they can also be symbols that have a universal quality that have appeared throughout human history. Sure. So reoccurring sort of themes or or things. I mean, so this is a concept that goes back to like the philosophy of of Plato, who's usually associated with sometimes first formulating a concept of archetypes in in Mm -hmm. some sense, right? That's right. That's right. So it does harken back to that. Um, So, but the thing, there's, there's two levels here in that an archetype is this kind of formative principle or pattern. And as Jung says, in and of itself, meaning in its most um, pure form, we we can't see or know what an archetype is. We only know it um, by the images or symbols that arise and by the ways that it's experienced. So that, and that is often, um, a big piece that, um, you know, I think we can see that's a, a kind of an argument that's leveled against Jung saying that, well, archetypes are like these fixed, unchanging, um, you know, kind of images or ideas. And, and that's not true because in, at least not in the way that we, you know, more deeply understand Jung, which is that we only experience an archetype because of the way that it comes through um, historical, cultural, and individual valences, right? We're all affected by our environment, our personal history, our collective history. So, um, you know, so the simplest way to maybe sort of think about this too is that, you know, the archetype of the trickster. The, the trickster is present in all mythologies around the world. Right. In, in the Greek Roman tradition, we've got Hermes, Mercury. Um, in the Native American traditions, we have Coyote. Um, you know, and we have Loki coming to us from the Nordic tradition. So the trickster is an archetypal figure who has a very kind of defined character. And yet the way that different cultures and peoples have, um, rendered or manifested that figure has been very specific to both the time and the place in which those stories were told. Sure. Or even just to break it down much more simply for those maybe struggling with this, it's like in in Plato, it was the concept of like the overarching concept of like a tree. And there are many different specific manifestations of trees that we've seen in, in the world, but the idea that there's like a transcendent quality 
that has all of the overarching qualities of what a tree is uh, that manifests in different ways in sort of the actual physical world, right? Right. Yeah. And then on a on a personal level, you know, um, the the journey we can think say that you know a journey is archetypal, right? What it is to leave what we know and um, enter the world um, or enter a new territory, going on a journey, whether that's literal or even sort of psychological going on an investigation of something, trying to understand the journey. But each person is going to have their own uh, way of dealing with venturing out into the unknown. So the very act is an, is archetypal, but the way you approach venturing into an unknown land is going to be very different from the way that I do. Right. And and so Jung took that, that notion of, a, of an archetype, and then he started looking at how archetypes arose in things like mythology. So, so before I sort of interrupted you with the tree example, you were talking about like the notion of the trickster and that that being like an, an archetype or a concept that uh, he saw showing up in the mythology of many different cultures in different ways, but that somehow there seemed to be something behind that that was like a unifying principle that was representing the same underlying concept, even if some of the details and nuances of how that story manifested in different cultures was slightly different, right? Exactly. So, um, you know, the idea being that um, there are archetypal patterns to um, experience. Uh, there are archetypal figures that are connected in uh, in terms of their underlying structure or characteristics, but that have, based on the time and place in which they have come forward, carry all these unique kind of idiosyncratic qualities. Um, so... I mean, with not wanting to pick such a common one, but the hero is, is you know, another archetypal figure that, um, like the trickster, is ubiquitous. Um, and, and there is a definitive pattern um, to the hero as an archetypal figure, um, but the way in which that that can be represented um, seems en endless, right? Endless possibilities. Right of the the hero as an archetype in mythology, and so so Jung mm -hmm. took this idea of of the archetype, which seems like a really foundational principle in his in his thinking and in his his approach, and applied it to study many different areas. This idea that there's archetypes out there, and he applied it to mythology in, in the way that we're talking about here. But he also applied it, like you were saying earlier, in psychology that you could see archetypes manifesting in different sort of psychological scenarios as well, right? Yeah, I think the way to kind of think about the relationship between archetypes and mythology and the way that Jung meant it was that myths, the gods, the heroes, the crazy characters are the archetypes personified. It's like we can't see an archetype unless it's being enacted, and for time and memorial, they have been enacted in the great mythological stories from all cultures. So when we're talking about um, 
you know, it's, it, it's the way in which humans have been connected to these, you know, transpersonal uh, values or attitudes through the images of divinity um, and, um, um, you know, sp- you know, spiritual forms. Um, so, so myths are the archetypes in motion. And psychologically, we experience those archetypal energies in, um, in our lives. So, you know, the way in which someone as a baby, our mother and our father generally, hopefully, are, you know, sort of the prime divinities that give life, nurture and sustenance, you see? And so we attribute in, in a very sort of innocent um nascent kind of a way that the energy of the archetypal to um the people and experiences that we have in our life right and i think you know probably nothing kind of hits closer to home if people are trying to kind of square this as when we fall in love right sure, i mean the, falling the in love is archetypal like the ar- archetype or the concept of of falling in love yeah yeah, where where we literally feel like something has happened to us, that there's a power drawing us toward another person, or all of, you know, the way life can all of a sudden seem kind of filled with meaningfulness and hopefulness and, and light. I mean, all of that is really psychic energy. And so there's something that's awakened, we're connected to archetypal energy in in, in the deeper mysteries of falling in love or being in love. Sure. And uh, connected with this idea of archetypes is other, also another important concept that is often associated with Jung, it seems like, or, or that he really pioneered and, and his school is known for, which is the notion of the, the collective unconscious. Um, mm. Could you talk a little bit about what that is or how he conceptualized that? Yeah, so the collective unconscious is is a term that he used to talk about basically that deep riverbed of mythological or archetypal images that connect humanity. So, uh talking about um you know Aphrodite or Coyote, Hermes, um you know all of these figures um in a way live within or come from the collective unconscious because they belong to the history of humanity and not to an individual. So um, the collective unconscious is the place where these great formative or structural patterns of life, the archetypes, um, sort of live um, or come from. Right, so it's it's sort of mm. the realm where the archetypes are, and it's something that exists almost out there independently of like an individual life, or becomes the reason why you could have a recurring archetype that shows up in one person's life in like a century or two ago, and then in modern day, somebody has a life and they experience a certain scenario or a certain archetype in the same way or in a similar fashion and it's because the archetypes are living in this um this area called the collective unconscious. That's yeah, that's right. I think there's a beautiful uh kind of image that Jung gives of this 
you know, he has this really great autobiography called Memories, Dreams, Reflections. And anyone who isn't really familiar with Jung but is getting curious listening to this, I think it's the best first book to read um, because he this was written toward the end of his life. And so he has that beautiful sort of retrospective perspective, right? That having lived a very full life, he can look back and talk about his main ideas uh, theoretically, conceptually, but in relationship to his lived experience. And he recounts this dream he has where he's in his in a dream house and he's standing in this room in the house and it was a very nicely appointed house and he's kind of impressed with himself thinking, wow, what a very nice dream house I have. And he notices that there's a stairway leading down out of this room and he's curious. And so in the dream, he walks down a staircase and down the next level, there's another room, but um, it's maybe more... Um, um, kind of Rococo in style, let's say like 17th century. So it's a couple hundred years older than the first room. And he's like, oh, this is interesting. He descends another floor. And then there he's kind of in a more Roman style room. And then he descends even further until he gets to the bottom. And he's in a very kind of primal cave-like room. And that idea that last room, that bottom room that seems to be the basement and also the foundation for all the rooms above is really an image of um, the collective unconscious and how going deeper and deeper in history, in time, um, we can come to some um, connected ground from which all of history, both personal and collective and cultural sort of emerges from, or at least is informed by. Sure. And that story is great because it points to one of the key things that Jung, it seems like he was doing constantly, which was interpreting things in a symbolic, from a symbolic standpoint as holding greater meaning or, or symbolism in a way that was was relevant and valid, including things like dreams which other sort of psychologists were were involved in interpreting, like Freud, who was also interested in dream interpretation, but would interpret it as being like outgrowths of like uh, you know of sexual impulses or other things like that. Whereas Jung was um, interpreting things like that symbolically as containing important information that was coming from the realm of the unconscious or or the archetypes or what have you. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you've put it really well. And I think that this, what you've said is actually pinpointing one of the key understandings that differentiate Jung's view of the psyche from other early theorists. And that is his sense that there is a deeper organizing principle at work in the lives of all of us. And whatever this organizing principle is, it drives the process of what he called individuation. And individuation, which it may have an unconscious goal or a hidden purpose for the individual. I mean, that, I, you know, I think individuation is really um, also one of the key um, ideas, key theories of Jung's, but it, it it's 
it's it's deeply life affirming this idea that that even if we're not conscious of it that there's something um moving us driving us toward a greater wholeness of who we can be and and I don't mean that in a kind of new age affirmation sort of a way I I mean that very much in the sense of becoming more um connected to the unconscious and having our consciousness and our unconscious be in a kind of dialogue that in and of itself is related to creativity um a sense of meaningfulness in our life a sense of being connected to something that's much bigger than us and yet has our best interest in mind somehow right and and young saw this which he called individu- individuation as the the goal or like the purpose of not just psychology but also what you're sort of what each individual is moving towards or striving towards in their life as a whole yeah i mean hopefully i mean just in the term individuation as as the word itself suggests you know what does it take to really be an authentic individual meaning um to be living life on the terms that um are discreetly your own but not just from a kind of ego willful perspective but in the sense of like what it is that really you need to fulfill or live into in your life and knowing what that is from a depth perspective um that doesn't come from just our goal setting kind of meditation learning what that is really comes from being in um a deep relationship with the unconscious sure so and that becomes part of his purpose or what he sees as his goal in what he's doing in terms of helping people individually in terms of um psychological analysis right that's right that's right and and i think you know to me you know the astrological view shares this same sort of orientation this idea that the chart reveals an image of becoming um that we need an individual i need to fulfill my cosmological blueprint or seed or you know how we you know some more explicitly jungian astrologers talk about the birth chart as a symbol of potential so and in that sense it's not about just reacting to our birth chart but rather living into it right um and so yeah right yeah no i mean taken fast, from that perspective but, if if hmm. if that's his goal with psychology you can immediately then see why he would have been attracted very early on to something like astrology to whatever extent astrology could help one understand that or or strive towards some of the hidden not just psychological complexes that one has but the things that a person is growing or moving towards in terms of their overall life development yeah that's right that's right so i guess we could say that the psychological attitude to problems or symptoms that jung encouraged um was to have patients find within themselves the seed of new potential or growth so not simply focusing on the cause of the problem or the symptom but rather how do you approach it as being a kind of opening 
Right, and and that, and using sort of dialogue and and exploration of that in order to get to the core underlying themes, which then can in turn lead to actual healing of not just the not just the the outcome of of whatever the person is suffering from in the immediate moment, but the root causes of of what's causing that in some sense. That's right, and I think you know when. I mean, you can say healing because hopefully that's what happens after we're doing this kind of big work because, and, but what, what might proceed or rather what makes that even remotely a possibility is consciousness. Meaning when we become conscious of the underlying issue, um, attitude, um, opinion or um, uh, problem that really lives underneath whatever the particular issue or situation is, the very act of being open to seeing what lies under our general purview, th- that is an act of, that's a spark of consciousness. That's an act of connecting to something um, deeper and just that contact, so to speak, the contact of our awareness to what lies beneath our awareness that more fully informs what's been going on, that, that's the change. That's the kind of transformative hit that can lead to, you know, healing, resolution, and if nothing else, more clarity. Sure, that makes sense. Mm. Mm. Um, and so, uh, so, so Young using some of these with some of these like concepts and foundational principles that he developed eventually developed a sort of school or an approach to psychology or, or psychoanalysis and became very notable during the course of his career and had a lot of people who followed or, or emulated that approach that, that then, you know, is a major approach to psychology today at this point, right? Mm-hmm, that's right. Okay. Um, so yeah. that's sort of part of the context then. And in terms of mainstream psychology, though, as a sort of outsider, somebody that doesn't have a lot of background in this, I got the sense I, I often get the sense that Jung, because of his and the Jungian approach, because of its openness and sometimes orientation towards more, more, more spiritual or mythological or or sometimes almost quasi-religious concepts that it's not fully within the mainstream movement of like mainstream psychology but it still otherwise has made some major con- contributions to it and is still a major sort of school of psychology that's relatively well recognized is that more or less accurate or how would, how would you frame that yeah no i think that is well yes i think that is accurate and i mean I mean, one way to approach this point is that, you know, why why is Jung's work significant uh, in the field of psychology? Um, and for me, I would say that it has to do with the way he attempted to meld together the wisdom of the past with modern psychological understanding and methods of treatment. So that Jung's psychology is one that grows organically from traditional understandings, particularly in the realms of spirituality, 
religion, mythology, and comparative symbolism. And in an era where psychology uh, was becoming increasingly behavioral and rationalistic, Jung insisted on the importance of a spiritual life, because that has been the sort of core of the human experience from time immemorial. Why would all of a sudden now, would the spiritual life really not be so important? <laughs> you know, I mean, that that's, it's a really big question. Right. Um, and I think we're seeing it, it's, it's the same issue today. It hasn't changed very much. Psy- mainstream psychology is very behavioral, very rationalistic. There's a great, um, investment in neurological exploration, none of which is, uh, all of which ought to be explored, but it comes at it when you read the orientations and principles of um, cognitive behavioral um, and, and other schools of psychology, they, um, it, it, it's a very different sense about the life of the soul and the value of, of um, our symptoms and suffering, which looking at it from the perspective of the past, um, the life of the soul and the issues that come through our suffering are callings from the spirit. They, they're openings for a, a different perspective or, or, the, or the budding of wisdom of some kind. So it's... Um, it's a very different way of thinking about the, the life of the soul. Sure. Well, I mean, even just that setting it apart is is an acknowledgement of the notion of of the soul or or the psyche as and having some sort of spiritual component versus uh, maybe a more mainstream psychological approach of seeing things in purely almost like physiological terms or something like that. Right. Or a mechanistic. Right. Um, right. So yeah, so so I so I think so I, I to me that piece about bridging the wisdom of the past in relationship to our contemporary um issues, needs and and kind of vision of treatment is really um just really key when it comes to Jung. Um Sure, and, and that and, brings us. And, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, I was I was gonna wax poetic about the importance of history, but I think the point's been made. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we'll actually circle our background there, but this brings us back. Then we can we can loop back now to his story because that then provides us better context to understand than that split with Freud. Because almost like right there in that split with Freud, there's something. For us, looking back almost like a century later now, where we can almost see what became like the, the modern modern psychology in some sense, and, and some of the reductionistic thinking, even though large parts of Freud's thinking are not have, have since been rejected or not necessarily still, you know, part of contemporary psychology. There, there's something about the motivations and some of the reasons behind their split that's very interesting today. Now looking back at what mainstream psychology is versus what Jung's approach is and the things that he did incorporate into his work, I mean, is that accurate? Am I taking that too far? I'm not sure. 
Yeah, I mean, I um, I mean, I, I realize I that's know. that's partially yeah. depending on what sort of school of of psychology that you're looking at, perhaps, or or maybe um, it, it's difficult to make like a blanket statement about an entire field like that. But I guess I was right. just thinking of the extent to which Jung was open to incorporating other things like astrology into his work and recognizing what you could almost classify as like metaphysical concepts like the idea of an archetype or the idea of a collective unconscious are almost quasi metaphysical or spiritualistic type concepts that i'm not sure i mean to what extent those are usually recognized by mainstream psychology today i mean and i think that's right and and this you know goes this goes back to Jung's lifelong fascination with the occult and esoteric traditions and topics. But again, I think um, if we see them as having been at one point, whether it's um, you know divination or alchemy or astrology, as having been really central. Um, symbolic languages that lived at the heart of certain cultures and at certain periods of time and were like taken for granted in terms of their truthfulness or their view on reality. Jung was recognizing them in that way, meaning that, that like astrology, for example, had for centuries been understood to be an absolutely valid way of understanding individuals, periods of time. And so he, he didn't just, just, he didn't take as a privilege our modern position to say that, well, it doesn't make sense anymore. You see what I mean? It's like, it's, it's this, um, he really valued these kind of esoteric traditions, um, as having been the, containers of knowledge for the past and therefore can still be containers of knowledge today if we know how to work with them or look at them with a more psychological, metaphorical, symbolic sensibility and not as literal fact. You see? Right. I, th- I think we mm. can understand like having outlined some of those things in terms of mm. the ideas that were key ideas in his thought. Why then very early on in his career, he would have developed an interest in astrology and would have mm. recognized very quickly. One of the things, one of the quotes I pulled out of the book at one point was he said that, um, quote unquote, astrology was the first form of psychology, which is an extremely mm. young science dating from the end of the 19th century only. So he's recognizing sort of psychology, uh, modern psychology is a relatively recent development, but that many of the things that he's trying to do with psychology or many of the things that he's recognizing, he can see pieces of that already pre-existing in astrology, not only in terms of things like the use of natal charts in order to look at, you know, whatever you want to call it, psychological complexes, but using astrology as an access point for understanding archetypes, especially um, through the planets and the planets themselves being um, an excellent access point for understanding core archetypal dynamics that are uh, sort of in in effect in different parts of the world. That's right. I mean, absolutely. And we can even sort of take the word archetype out of that and just say that, you know, 
Jung understood astrology to be this ancient symbolic language that provides insight into the workings of the psyche. You know, it's like, how do those, how do the elements of the psyche, which of course are partially the archetypes, how do they, how do they work? Or how are they working for this particular individual, right? What are the challenges? Um, so yeah, yeah, you're, you're right on. Right. And and we finally, now that we can talk about the planets and how he and astrology in general and what his thoughts were, we can immediately also kind of relate that concept of an archetype back to something astrologically because one of the things that's come up a few times over and over again actually in the podcast is how, um, I think it was in the last episode, we were talking about Saturn and the concept of Saturn and we read an excerpt from the second century astrologer Vadius Valens, and then we read an excerpt from just the significations given in Turnus's work, Cosmos and Psyche. And one of the things about that, that holds together sort of the astrological tradition and how they deal with the planets is it's always this long list of significations because you can't actually artic- articulate an astrological archetype because it's like this transcendent concept mm. that can manifest in hundreds of different ways all mm. you can do is understand the hundreds or thousands of different manifestations and then through looking at all those different significations you start to develop in your mind the concept of what the overarching notion mm. is but there's still something where you can't articulate necessarily you can't put into words like you can't use a single word or sentence that will bring together that entire concept and all of its many manifestations. Instead, you just have this idea that Saturn sort of can represent these many things, for example. That's right. Yeah, I think that's great. And I and I think in many ways, you've just said in another way what I was saying about the difference between an archetype and an archetypal image. It's like, you know, you can't say what Saturn is, but you can talk about all the ways Saturn works us, shows up, how we experience it, the qualities, the char- his qualities, his characteristics, right? And so in that sense, those are all the archetypal images, whereas the archetype, Saturn, well, it it's 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 beyond our it's beyond our ken. Like we can't fix it. We can't we can't name it. But we can talk about it in relationship to how it appears. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. All right. So so Jung um, so Jung was a psychologist, but he was or a psycho- psychoanalyst or or I'm not sure what what is the correct. I, I guess he's referred to as a uh, psychiatrist. So well, he, he was a psychiatrist, but um, um, you know, uh, Freudians and Jungians call themselves psychoanalysts. As well, so you know, it's it's kind of uh, there's always a lot of different terminology. So you you, um, so he he was a psychoanalyst. Okay, so psychiatrist, he, <laughs> and and he did that, and he did that individual work with individual people in in direct one on one sessions. But he also had this very mm-hmm. strong academic background where he was very like extremely well read, and he he seemed to have loved to read literature on ancient history and ancient authors of philosophy and religion and and science and, and occult matters and, and all sorts of different things. And it, that seems like part of the sort of necessary understanding in terms of who he was and what his contributions were is he had this just tremendous sort of breadth of understanding of the past in terms of mm-hmm. trying to understand the past and draw 
various insights from from what people were were doing in it that could be relevant in modern times, right? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. And I think your use of the word tremendous is is right on. Uh, I mean, his his um the the breadth of his knowledge and his curiosity is just really astounding when you kind of start digging into his work and to see all the directions he went in. Yeah. Yeah, and and he seems to have had some so he spoke uh, German was his first language, but it looks like he read Latin and it looks like he may have also read Greek. Do you know do you know if he had training in Greek? Offhand? Well, I think yeah, I mean I think that was I mean I don't know for a fact, but my understanding is that that would have been sort of um par for the course in terms of a, you know, classical education. Right, during that time frame in like the late 19th early 20th century. Right. So that's really interesting because it's it's different than you know today where he would have had the ability to go back and read the primary source texts in their original language and mm. moreover he didn't just have the ability to do that but he did and you can see in his writings where he'll you know talk about like a Gnostic text and from the second century and he'll actually quote it or he'll talk about the work of Nostradamus and he'll actually cite some specific passage. So he right. was very interested in not just studying primary sources, but yeah. also talking about and, and analyzing them in some sense. That's right. That's right. I mean, and I, I have to admit, like, th- this is one of those moments where I just feel like I was born in the wrong era. I, d- I don't know about you, but I would have loved to have learned Latin and Greek in school. <laughs> Oh yeah, no. I mean, that's I mean, really killed me, especially having to try to oh, learn right. some of, some of that in my work with Hellenistic astrology, just because, right. uh, yeah, that would be tremendously useful. And that's the thing that's cut off a lot of more recent, uh, you know, modern astrologers who've come about in the late twentieth and early twenty first century is our lack of language skills. Mm. Sort of cut has cut us off from the tradition, the earlier tradition, until recently when some translations have started to be made. And that's one of the things that makes that I'm actually really surprised about in reading your book is I didn't realize it's been like 10 years because I've been focusing on Hellenistic astrology since I read any of Young's work. And so I read it at a much earlier stage in my career. And I was very interested in his theories of on synchronicity and wrote a term paper on it in like 2005, but then moved on to other things. But coming back to his work and reading your book now with all of his writings, I'm really struck by yeah how much he was drawing on the earlier tradition and how he also seems to have been aware of a lot of earlier astrological sources where it wasn't just that he had an academic approach to studying mythology or religious and religious studies and psychology and things like that but in astrology he also had the ability to read primary source texts and he appears mm-hmm. to have done that and that mm-hmm. seems to have to informed his astrological understandings to some extent right and I think we're going to learn a lot about this very shortly um, because Liz Green um, is uh, just on the verge of having published a two-volume um, work on Jung, also with Routledge. So this is very exciting. And um, maybe you, you, you know a little bit about this already, this anticipated work. I mean, I just saw a reference to it in one of your footnotes, and then Nick okay. Campion mentioned it to me in an email asking if I was aware of it. But I'm actually extremely interested in that now, having just heard about it in the past couple of days, because that's my next question is what 
in developing his approach to astrology, at least by 1911. And then that became a lifelong, as we can mm. learn very quickly in your book, astrology became a lifelong interest for him and something he integrated and, and used almost continuously. It seems like I'm very curious what were his sources and what sort of astrological influences did he have, you know, both early in his career as well as later on. Right. Yeah, me too. So um, what I understand is that uh, the Jung family gave Liz Green access to his library, his uh, Jung's personal library, as well as the suitcase or two of papers that Jung's second daughter, Gret Bauman Jung, who was an astrologer, um, had kept. And Liz Green has had that like unseen material from the suitcase, um, as well as um, access to his library. And so the first volume of her work is um, Jung's Studies of Astrology. And it's going to be a review commentary. I'm not exactly sure how it's been um, sort of framed, but we're going to be basically invited into understanding who he was reading, um, who influenced the way that he was looking at astrology and um, how he was using it in his practice. So that's very, very exciting. Yeah, that that's going to be incredibly interesting. So I look forward to mm. checking that out, and even just reading through your book and some of the excerpts that you guys picked out in order to demonstrate his references to and his statements about astrology. I saw some of the references he was making. He cites at least a couple of times the work of Bouche Leclerc, who wrote mm -hmm. a, a book titled Greek Astrology in French in like eighteen ninety nine or something like that, at the very end of the end of the nineteenth century, and it was. Became like the standard academic work on Greco-Roman astrology, and, and for the most part, it has been for for the past century. Mm -hmm. And he cites that. So what it means is that Young did, like any good academic, he basically did a literature review of of basically contemporary academic scholarship on astrology in the early twentieth century, relatively early in his career. And then he also went back and read some of the primary source texts. That's right. So that in and of itself is interesting because that's one of the things that sets apart sometimes I feel like you know it, it, there's been a movement over the past 20 or 30 years in the astrological community for astrologers to become more involved in academia and that's often one of the things that you'll see that that, that will set apart an astrologer that has some academic academic training is that they'll, they'll do that process of like the literature review and they will take into account both contemporary discussions and the sort of like scholarship on the subject, but they'll also go back and focus on primary source texts and, and citing those texts and this sort of discussion and critical analysis of them. And that's something that makes Young's work very unique is he really and this is where it becomes interesting, the question of a, you know, could we classify Young as an astrologer? And and how do you de define that topic? And I would actually argue that using the definition of astrology that I, of astrologer that I usually use, that Jung was an astrologer. And if that's true, if you if you could classify him as an astrologer, he would have actually become or been in retrospect one of the most notable and influential astrologers of the 20th century. Um, when you were writing this book, I mean, do you obviously he's not usually classified as an astrologer. He's not usually treated that way. How do you feel about him, or how would you classify him, having read his 
his works in the way that you did or in the way that you put this book together? Hmm. Wow, that's such an interesting, um, such a great question. Well, I think I'd like to hear your definition of an astrologer. Like, how do you use that term? Sure. When do you? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Sure. So, I I would distinguish between a an astrologer. Let's say the term astrologer is a generic term, and I usually the the definition I use is that uh, an astrologer. It's sort of a three part definition, but a person who a or one believes in astrology as a legitimate phenomenon. Two has some background or training in the techniques associated with astrology. So actual, let's say, advanced training in astrology and its practices. And three actively uses it or applies it in their life in some way on a regular basis. So um, that distinction is important because there's many people. There's lots and lots of people. Actually, I would argue the majority of the astrological community of people that you would consider to be astrologers who. Actively practice and use astrology and research, or are enthusiasts about it, but who where their primary income is not necessarily through doing astrological consultations. Mm. So somebody like that, you could classify more as, let's say, a professional astrologer, where their primary vocation is practicing astrology. But there are lots of people because of the weird place that astrology occupies in society, where that's not what they're primarily known for. Even though it's the thing that they're passionate about that they spend most of their time doing, even if it's not like their primary income. And he's one of those people who, even though his primary vocation and what he's known for is as being a psychologist, he um, spent a huge deal of time not just studying astrology and writing about and talking about it, but also in some of the excerpts in your work, it sounds like he was. Not infrequently casting charts for some of his the clients that he was talking to in order to get psychological insight from mm-hmm. that. So he was actually practicing astrology as part of his practice as, as a psychoanalyst. And, and to that extent, I think we could actually classify him as an astrologer. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think your definitions are great. Um, your qualifiers for using that 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 you know the an astrologer. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Jung, and I think this is going to be made even more clear when Liz Green's work comes out, but he, clearly he had an astrological practice. I, I guess I, um, you know, but, I, you know, just thinking about, you know, his other fields of interest, I mean, I guess we could say that he was also an alchemist. <laughs> I mean, if we're looking, you know, if we if we are exploring his deep study of alchemy and his his um, coming to recognize alchemy as being the historical backbone of his psychological theory, um, I yeah. So right. I, I I think that um, it. No, that's a that's a really good point because then he's like mm. he's an alchemist, he's like a religious studies scholar, he's <laughs> right. you know a historian, um, right? He's a doctor. A, I mean, a doctor, phenomenologist. I mean, because that that is kind of a, a, a huge part of the, uh, the work of a psychologist is to to be present to the, pheno- the the phenomenological appearance of symptoms and responses. Um, yeah. Right. It, but- and it's like, but that really does become an issue in the history of astrology in general, because sometimes many of the most, or some of the most prominent, you know, quote unquote astrologers 
or people had an influence on the field of astrology were polymaths that were you know good at a number of different things so like ptolemy for example in the 2nd century was you know he wrote influential works on optics on geography on astronomy on harmonics and he also wrote a book on astrology and the book on astrology ended up being one of the most influential ones but so that then there's a question can you call him an astrologer mm-hmm. versus somebody who like Vedius Valens who's a contemporary who that was his primary vocation and he didn't write works in other fields um you know is Ptolemy still an astrologer is actually something that's debated but i can also think of other people like you know Richard Tarnas who who became prominent by publishing the passion of the western mind Mm-hmm. And through some of his other works, since he has other interests, and the question of you know is Tarnus an astrologer versus mm-hmm. is his primary vocation or or the pr- thing that he's primarily known for in other circles something else? Mm. Right, cosmologist, philosopher, historian. Yeah, I it's um, I I I like I like the kind of. Uh, ambivalence or the the lack of clarity around these frames and the reason for that is that i don't like the way at least in kind of academia there's been this really overwrought um f- form of specialization that people become you know specialists on one particular topic and sort of consumed by knowing an incredible an inordinate amount of information around a very particular inflection of a religious tradition or genre of literature whatever that is um i which is not to say that i don't respect that kind of deep dive that people do but i think it's when people are like you were saying with ptolemy that there are linking overarching areas of interest that creativity really happens and so i i i like not having a clear sense of it i i like our complexity because i think that our complexity of interests more honestly reflects the complexity of our nature sure definitely and and especially mm. for somebody like him that's almost trying to create or people like Young or people like Ptolemy that are almost where their their broader project or agenda is like a grand unified field theory which you know brings together many different fields and many different specializations and approaches so to attempt to peg them with any one of those it, it almost ends up being inaccurate for for that reason because they're yeah creating something much larger than any one field um, and, and additionally, to further sort of backtrack on my earlier attempts to peg him as an astrologer, it's interesting reading some of the excerpts in your book, which include some of his private correspondences with different people, which includes actually some prominent astrologers from the mid 20th century where he corresponded with or wrote letters. You have excerpts from letters he wrote to Andre Barbeau, the famous French astrologer, as well as B.V. Raman, who is a very prominent um, Indian astrologer in the mid 20th century. And one of the things that's actually really interesting comparing some of those correspondences that I noticed versus when he was writing to Freud is that often when the astrolo- when he's talking with the astrologers, he comes off like a psychologist who's being approached by astrologers and then talking about the field as if he's 
outside of it. Whereas when in some of those brief snippets of the astrological discussions where he's talking with Freud, he comes off like an astrologer who's trying to convince Freud that that he should pay attention to <laughs> astrology. So there's this weird sort of interesting dynamic in terms of that, even in terms of his interactions with people during his lifetime. Oh, yeah. It's nice that you pick that up. I mean, I guess it's the the that old thing, you know, know your audience. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So, but despite all of that, and despite those discussions, one of the things that becomes clear in reading um, your book and the different excerpts is how much of he was throughout different parts of his life, and you have different chapters where it talks about the way that he thought about and attempted to formulate how astrology worked and what it was capable of, and and why it was doing what it did. And it was really interesting to see what have become some of the formative principles and philosophical positions that modern astrologers or that contemporary astrologers in the late 20th and early 21st century would have become core principles for us were things that seem like mm. they were first fully formulated in Jung's work. And, and that's mm. to the extent that that's true, that's why I would say that he became, even if that wasn't his primary primary vocation, one of the most influential astrologers of the 20th century just because he ended up laying down a number of um, foundational principles that later astrologers who were influenced by Jung incorporated into their work, like Dane Rudyard mm -hmm. or Liz Green or Stephen Arroyo. Mm -hmm. And through that, that ended up seriously influencing the modern astrological tradition. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and I guess this kind of brings us back to the idea of um, the way Jung said, well, astrology is really ancient psychology. So in, in some sense, I mean, not to be sort of circular in, 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 in the uh, response, but yeah, I mean, if we kind of pierce astrology back again that way, that it's, it's, it's an ancient symbolic psychology, there we are. Mm. Right, and I, and I may think there's a, a way in which that's definitely true, but one of the things that's interesting is, you know, for for me is having gone back and looked at the way that astrology was practiced in, like, let's say, the second century, while there was sometimes a psychological component where there'll be like a chapter on studying character analysis or or the psyche or the soul of the individual. A lot of it was very much oriented towards you know concrete statements about concrete external events in a person's mm. life or predictions. And Jung was part of an early um, development in early 20th century astrology where there was a push towards making astrology more psychological or using it in a more psychological context. And, and I think that's mm. the way in which he was influential. And maybe we can talk about and focus on from here on out you know, what was really his influence on the astrological tradition or, or to what extent did he influence it? Yeah, great. So I think that's the maybe the biggest thing that this book, now that we have all of his statements and, and sort of writings about astrology that you can fully assess, is that you can trace back where some of the core themes and concepts that show up so prominently or have become commonplace in modern astrology. You can actually trace a lot of those back to statements that he made starting in the in the early 20th century. Right, yeah. Um Okay, so I think um, you know specifically talking about psychological astrology as its own um, 
I guess we would say the, the general orientation to astrology that that looks particularly at uh, psychological interpretation is, you know, largely based on some of these a few Jungian principles. I think the first is, um, in, in the most primary sense, um, in exploring the unconscious, our self knowledge deepens and expands. And, you know, psychological astrology uh, seeks to draw attention to and work with the unconscious aspects through the symbolism of the birth chart. Um, and in this way, our awareness is expanded when we connect experiences and issues to the archetypal patterns in the chart. So this recognition of the reality of the unconscious is really, you know, primary to a depth, both Freudian, but particularly Jungian um, psychology. So, I mean, I think that would be, you know, the, you know, first sort of primary, primary thing that comes up. Um, sure. And, and using astrology, using especially the birth chart in particular as an access point for, for doing that, for doing something essentially that you would otherwise try to do through just talking with the the client or the patient or what have you. But for Young, it seemed like sometimes in one of the excerpts, he said he, if he had a difficult case, he would sometimes default to the chart in order to get a better access point for what he would otherwise try to approach more indirectly. Right. Or like um – you know, it's like when I'm, when I'm, you know, working with the client and, and they're, uh, you know, maybe, um, talking about their, um, you know, sort of desire, you know, to be in relationship in a more full way. And, and, and they're, you know, trying to express that, uh, by talking about what's going on. But then if I'm looking at their chart and I can see that, you know, they have, um, you know, a Saturn Venus opposition, you know, the just that symbolism of seeing that that Saturn Venus opposition um, is uh, uh, recognizing that that that's giving me access to a sense of um, uh, sort of a sense of distance or difficulty or fearfulness around that, the kind of Venusian need for intimacy that helps me, um, sort of become more resonant to what the person is saying to me or where the challenge really is. So it isn't always getting caught up in, um, you know, the, uh, the specifics of what's happening in the relationship here and now, but rather what's kind of the underlying, um, challenge or tension that the person always experiences when it comes to, um, intimacy. You see right. what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's the way that Jung was talking about it is that the chart can help us kind of cut through, not cut through, but maybe see through more quickly into those core, um, you know, archetypal configurations, so to speak. Right. Just seeing, knowing uh, from the astrologer's perspective that there's some sort of Venus Saturn archetype, or there's some archetype that's operating in the person's life that might be represented or can be accessed by understanding what a Venus Saturn combination means. And then 
perhaps if talking to them about some specific scenario that they're struggling with in their love life or some some desire that they have or some um, issue that they have specifically and realizing or, or the astrologer being able to to recontextualize that or look at it in the broader sense as being a manifestation of this broader theme that's sort of a recurring theme throughout their life and being able to address it from that perspective rather than just focusing on the specific or particular manifestation of one particular instance of that of like I don't know getting dumped or something like that versus a recurring Venus Saturn theme that's sort of manifesting in their life. That's right. Yeah, for sure. And I think we can even take it another step further and say um how can we then talk to the client about learning to more deeply um value the gifts that come with that Venus Saturn and not just try to find ways to get around it. So that's what I was meaning earlier about this sense of like living into our chart, like living into that which is kind of drawing us forward um, in terms of individuation, which includes our difficulties and challenges and incapacities, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I think that's right on. Sure. So it becomes much more process oriented because there's that mm. underlying goal of individuation and then it becomes there's more emphasis i think on on more on psychological development rather than just attempting to make concrete predictions about what will happen in the person's life but instead trying to use the chart and the astrological placements whether they're natal placements or transits as an access point for uh, psychological growth and, and internal mm. growth rather than just talking about material or, or external circumstances. That's right. Right. So I think, th I mean, that would be, you know, another one of those main uh, principles that seem to be, um, you know, taken from Jungian psychology, which is this emphasis on psychological development. So astrology um, um, as um, a guide to the way in which we deepen or expand, um, you know, is expressed in a number of ways, foremost being that the perspective that the birth chart is symbolic of an individual soul, their potential, and it also reveals how people experience life, um, the, 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 the percept, their perceptive, uh, attitude towards certain fields of experience. Um, and that the chart also shows us the nature of our complexes and our calling. So that in working with the chart, with those perspectives, then there's all of these opportunities for, um, you know, suggestions on how to approach different areas of our life and valuing, you know, the, those different um, gifts and challenges that come with it. Right. And, and I think, oh, no, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, well, um, I don't know. Are you familiar with the, the writing of Alice O. Howell? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I've read one of her books like a while, while back. Yeah, she, she was a Jungian analyst and then, and also an astrologer. And she actually passed away a couple of years ago. I didn't have the opportunity to meet her in person, but I knew, I, I know a couple of people that did. And she just struck me as being kind of one of those salty wise women. And she has this amazing 
quote that I included in part of the introduction to the book. And I, I wanted to read it here because I just think it's so uh, appropriate where she's, and she writes that the birth chart is in potentia, a treasure map to the individuation process or greater awareness of the self. And I am using self in Jung's definition of the word as meaning the center and totality of the psyche. The chart will impel us conscious unconsciously, as do our complexes, until we become more conscious. Um, so I mean, I just think that really encapsulates this idea that the chart is a way of working with our psyche. It, 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 it's, it's a tool for development. Right, that it's indicating areas in which you will have growth and sometimes you know challenges that might come up, but that the the purpose of even looking at those challenges, and that's one of the major developments in modern astrology was reframing you know quote unquote challenging planets or challenging placements as being opportunities for growth and transformation. And that's mm. really striking seeing that as something that seems to originate with young because even, even though that's become such so you know commonplace and it almost seems obvious to us in a modern early first 20, 21st century context when i see young talking about some of these concepts and i understand how that contrasts with you know how his contemporaries were talking about astrology like alan leo and um or, or even in germany i did a previous episode in december with about elsbeth eberton and some of her mm. mundane predictions and things like that that was not their orientation while there was certainly a trend especially with some of the theosophical astrologers towards a more sort of like spiritual new age astrology and and the idea of spiritual evolution or growth in some way and while it with Alan Leo especially there was a push towards astrology being used more for character analysis um there's a there's a major there's a radical departure going on here in the way that young is talking about how astrology should be used in a psychological context. And I, I never fully realized because it, it's like Jung himself primarily seems to have influenced the astrological tradition through intermediaries because he got picked up very early on by figures like Dane Rudyard, who started mm -hmm. talking about and incorporating some of Jung's ideas as early as his 1936 book, The Astrology of Personality. And then later you have people like Liz Green who became very popular and, and seriously integrated lots of things from Jung's psychology as well as other figures that, that you guys cite in the book at one point like Alice O'Howell, O'Howell or um, Stephen Arroyo. Mm -hmm. and, and it's sort of through those intermediaries that, that Jung has this major impact eventually on the astrological tradition, especially in that generation that came in in the 1960s and 70s. But it was surprising to me seeing the excerpts in your book how many of the foundational principles of modern astrology that he had already e either stated or sort of alluded to already in some of his writings um, pretty early on. I really, really value hearing your perspective because I think you have a much stronger, uh, you know, perspective and arc on the history of astrology. Um, so it's great to hear your. Um, the way that you're really seeing the inf the, the influence um, that Jung had and, and where it kind of slots in and starts to kind of ripple out. I, I, I really, this is, it's great for me to hear you talk about this. Yeah. And just my process of reading this book 
over the past week has been interesting as a result of that because I was I was surprised and I think some people will be surprised reading this because of these are ideas that have become commonplace but you just you have to realize that so many of them actually were somewhat unique mm-hmm. um yeah or or ideas that become more well fleshed out or have become standardized as like an approach or a school of astrology like you know archetypal astrology and the approach to astrology that Richard Tarnas has set up and and how many of the foundational principles um, where, where he seems to have been uh, sort of influenced by Jung. I think that was the other thing that was interesting there as well. Um, not not in like you know a negative way in, in like lifting things or, or not giving acknowledgement since he clearly does and, and recognized Jung and, and the important role that he played. But I was just surprised, you know, sometimes when you come in as a later or a more recent generation, there are certain assumptions that are being made by your contemporaries or certain things that everyone's doing that you assume are commonplace. But mm. when you go back like a few decades and you see less and less or you see fewer and fewer people making the same assumptions or making the same statements, you realize sometimes how recent certain conceptualizations are. Um, so for example, that was something we've talked about a few months ago with the the nodes and and the idea that the north node has to do with your future and the south node has to do with your past lives or something and how while that's taken oftentimes as commonplace now it's a relatively recent development over the past few decades um and that there's just certain concepts like that that i saw or or sort of recognize as relatively recent in the broader context of things but where you can really see young as as being the originator in some sense Right. Yeah. No, it's it's really terrific because it's so important. And I guess this is more on our sort of scholarly tip, but it's so important to be um, cognizant of these waves and shifts of ideas. Um, and, and that kind of get because it informs the field, it informs the very assumptions that we make. Um, and with enough time between trends or sort of paradigms of understanding, we can look back and begin to kind of see larger patterns at work in a field of study, which is so interesting, you know? Um, So yeah, I I think, I think this is, this is an important part of um, the astrological field, which, 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 you know, circumscribes these, these aspects, not just astrology as practice, but the the you know the the, the ideas of the history of ideas um, and how and what's informed them. Right, definitely, and, and that provides a good segue to uh, the last section, which is just mm. some of the theoretical assumptions behind astrology and the formative influence that Jung played on those. Because there's a few other concepts like that, that that it seems like we can trace back to him so the big one or or one of the you know really important like sort of almost the elephant in the room is his work on synchronicity mm. and the sort of theoretical conceptualization underlying how and why astrology works and this is almost such a big topic that it's, it almost deserves an episode on its own so we don't have to to go too far in attempting to articulate it here but you know you guys have at least a chapter i mean a large part of the book is devoted to i think you identify seven different ways in which he 
or, or formulations that he had during the course of his career about how he tried to conceptualize how astrology worked. And one of the, the major ones was his attempt to articulate the concept of, of synchronicity. Could you talk a little bit about that or, or, or what that was as, as a concept and how he conceptualized it? Yeah, yeah. So I'll, but you, but just to uh, underscore what you said, I mean, this is a huge topic. Um, and it would be really great if you had another interview, um, conversation with some people on synchronicity. And I think Kieran would be, uh, terrific in this regard. So, but yeah. so just to kind and, of. And I will, because he, um, mm. originally he was going to be, we had some technical difficulties. Otherwise, we would have had him on today. Mm. And right. I think uh, having read, he wrote the introduction to part four of the book, right? Where, where these seven different conceptualizations are articulated. That's right. Yeah. So, and, and this is just a, a little side note about the way the book was constructed. We actually divvied up the sections. And so Kieran worked on the first and the fourth, uh, the first being con- uh, the context of astrology and Jung's um, ideas. And then the fourth being um the theoretical ideas around astrology. So so those were his fields and I and I took care of the two in the middle of the book. So synchronicity shows up as um I mean it's so huge a topic just in terms of depth psychology, but um in the most hopefully simple simply rendered sketch I can give uh, synchronicity can best be defined as the connection between events that are, and, and that that connection is not causal. Um, meaning, um, like, um, you know, it's not a mechanical causal uh, event that because the sun is in Leo, it's then emanating leonine energy and affecting people with that kind of leonine attitude. And they're going to go about and do leonine kinds of things for the day or the month or whatever that is. It's a kind of mechanistic causal image. Synchronicity talks about the connections that happen between events that are a causal. So psychologically, we most frequently talk about this, that an inner experience and an outer event are experienced as connected, but solely through the meaning that we make between the inner and the outer, rather than any cause and effect link between the two. Right. So he he basically posited, and this is partially important because although there was an earlier astrological tradition that used um, or conceptualized astrology as working in a purely symbolic sense or through mm. signs or omens or divination, like in the Mesopotamian tradition, from the second century forward, due to the influence of Ptolemy, there was a strong trend in the astrological tradition that conceptualized astrology as working because the planets emitted some sort of physical mechanism or or force which influenced right. life on earth and and people and our, our characters and destinies and what have you and young was one of the first figures who came along relatively early in the 20th century and developed or put forward this theory that that the mechanism underlying astrology that astrology could work not through some sort of physical mechanism but instead through some sort of a causal mechanism which he referred to as synchronicity Right. And so a, a synonym for synchronicity um, is meaningful coincidence, right? Where, so again, so let's take our birth chart as an example. Um, the location of the planets 
at the time of our birth do not cause us to have the characteristics that we have. Rather, there's a meaningful coincidence between the planetary alignment and our psychological character or state. I mean, and I think another way that we could say that using, again, more Jungian language is that we could call this that the, the planetary alignment and the personal experience are connected because there's the constellation of an archetype, right? The the planetary alignment gives us an image or a symbol by which to say, oh, is that what's going on? You see? Right. Or or even even more simple language is to say that it's a reflection of what's happening um, rather than being the direct cause of of what's happening. So in Mm. the same way that like the common sort of analogy that's used by most contemporary modern astrologers is just the way that like the clock on the wall says that it's you know 5 p.m. right now uh, that it's reflecting the time but it's not necessarily the cause or the reason why it is that time in the same way the planets can somehow reflect things that are happening in a person's life or can reflect uh, psychological complexes or their character or personality or what have you without necessarily being the cause or the reason that a person that a person is the way that they are right right that's right sure so but but i think that the thing that's really important from jung's perspective about synchronicity is um something is a synchronicity when it's meaningful to the person do you know what i mean when it strikes you as like um that that it has it has a sort of weight or a force or it seems to uh, clarify something in terms of what you need. And so that I think goes, uh, you know, that dovetails into the um, sort of awakening or healing capacity of astrology is, is and, and I'm, sh- and I'm, you know, you as a practicing astrologer too, I mean, the way someone can experience a huge amount of relief or a sense of being seen or being validated by the way that you can talk about the symbols of their chart or the transit that they're experiencing, and they feel met in in a very deep way. Um, so that so it's like the, the the potency of that that sense has to do with the meaningfulness that comes between um, the event and 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 the person. You see what I mean? Yeah, and and that's you know part of a broader sort of issue of the distinction between the way that Jung was trying to explore and and articulate this idea of synchronicity of this broader phenomenon that he was seeing that was almost an explanatory principle for weird sort of fringe stuff that would happen occasionally in a person's life or in consciousness versus the way that the astrological community and, and astrologers later adopted or or appropriated aspects of that as an explanatory mechanism for astrology and there's a i think different astrologers like Maggie Hyde for example who you cite at one point in the book in and her book on young and astrology really talks about the the disconnect to some extent between the way that young talked about um, synchronicity versus the way that astrologers sometimes use that term to to explain what they're doing and how yeah um, yeah I, I think so um, 
I, um, yeah. So in, ter- in terms of the distinction between, you know, synchronicity, it's a huge and broad topic. So I think we'll save that for the full expri- exploration of that for a future discussion. But just the idea that he introduced the notion or, or at least discussed in a contemporary context was one of the first authors to discuss the idea that astrology, astrology might not work through causes or through causal forces, but instead there might be another principle at play that explained the mechanism for how astrology could work, even if the planets are not literally influencing life on Earth. Yeah, great. All right. So the very last thing that I wanted to mention in terms of um, his contributions to the astrological tradition or influence on the astrological tradition was his use of mythology as a um, interpretive tool in order to understand the archetypes underlying astrology, because this is another one of those areas where even though you know, this has become commonplace in contemporary astrology to use the the name associated with the planet or a celestial body or to use the mythology or the story associated with that name in order to understand what it means in astrology more. Um, it's actually a relatively recent phenomenon to some extent. It was not done as explicitly in the earlier astrological tradition than as you might expect given how common it has become today. And 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 I can really see in some of these excerpts where you you spend a lot of time, sort of talking about or having excerpts from some of his discussions about mythology, where he would use that as an access point for understanding the planets, or sometimes using the planets as an access point for for mythology. And that started a very rich tradition, which especially ramped up with figures like Liz Green of you know, looking to the mythology of the planets in order to understand their astrological meaning. And sometimes even in an astrological consultation, um, astrologers like Demetra George, they would see a certain planet being prominent in a chart and they would talk about the myth associated with that planet and use that as a as an interpretive device or a device for exposition in astrology. And it's interesting seeing that again as as a as an almost principle that Jung is sort of pioneering in his work in a very basic form that would eventually become more prominent later in the century. Yeah, again, it's terrific to hear that reflection of yours um, in relationship to the longer arc of um, astrological practices and and ideas. You know, and I think, you know, looking back to Jung and the way um, we understand mythology um, from this uh, depth perspective is that by working with the stories, and this is whether, you know, I'm working with an astrological client or if an analyst is working with the patient, the stories, um, talking about, um, Persephone, um, being abducted or taken down into the underworld and being separated from everything she knows. That story and just that image and helping someone kind of imagine into it and imagine into how they feel that there's a resonance between the story and their own experience at that point of depression or loss um, of a relationship or, you know, of some uh, something important to them is so much fuller of an experience than talking about the concept of depression or loss. You see what I mean? That, that, um, or even to talk about, uh, a transit of Saturn 
I mean, a transit of Saturn for us astrologers, it's like we're full of rich, amazing images that go with that. But when we're talking with a new client or someone that isn't, that hasn't really done this work before or isn't in the tradition in some way, that doesn't mean anything. We might as well be talking about, you know, infantile regression and com- compensatory, you know, processes. All It's all conceptual language that draws us away f- can very often draw us away from the life of the experience that we're having. And so I think mythology, um, as I had said earlier, it's, it's, it's the archetypes personified. It's the archetypes walking around in bodies and engaging in certain actions and having certain storylines always being what's going on. And so we're actually seeing in motion these great orienting principles to life. Um, and they're much easier to connect to in story form. Um, so I, I think that it's, it's a valuing of the imagination and it's a valuing of mythopoetic language, which is, you know, another way to say that storytelling and reading good stories or being drawn to story helps us see ourselves or feel the resonance of our situation with a character in a way that can actually render some illumination, awareness, perspective on our situation. Right. Um, so I think that's that that's the 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 psychological use of mythology um that you know, as you said, found a very rich and vibrant um, thread in the astrological practices. Right. And and his interest and, and familiarity with both the astrology as well as mythology and mythological studies and the thing tying them together is this notion of the archetypes and, and therefore the notion that these myths or, or like ancient myths are not just you know stories that some somebody made up a long time ago, but instead they can hold deeper wisdom and insight and can be used in a very um, tangible way to invoke or, or to evoke um, very primal feelings and notions, um, especially within the context of an astrological consultation, because of the almost like interchangeability between myth and archetype and astrological symbol. Yeah, that's right. And, and, you know, this would, op- will open the door to a whole nother conversation. But I think it's really important too to just note that, um, Jung's working with mythology really came into play in his working with schizophrenic and psychotic patients. Because as he was, um, listening to their, um, their their uh, stories about what was happening and and what they were experiencing day by day he started to notice um like interesting images or figures that they were talking about and as he started to do research he found that in these fantasies were like ancient mythic figures that he knew for a fact that that person at the Bergholzli did not have any knowledge of personal knowledge of they didn't study you know peruvian mythology or whatever it was so it was actually in a very um 
phenomenological way that Jung began to see that in the depths of psychic chaos and experience, uh, psychic fantasy, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but just in, in, in the, in the psychological life and stories that we live, mythological images and symbols and figures were arising from basically the collective unconscious and and were walking around in people's dreams and in people's fantasies and their psychoses. So I'm just saying this because I, I think it's important that people understand that that connection was made by Jung because of what he was seeing happen in his patients. And that led him to then more deeply study mythology because he realized there are underlying patterns um, that people experience in relationship to certain situations. And so the more we can come to recognize the pattern, i.e. recognize Saturn's transit, just to make a, make a connection there, then we can more kind of readily sort of get a sense of, well, what's going on for this person? Um, sure. What's needed? What's missing? What's blocked? Um, you see what I mean? Yeah, that, um, that makes sense. And, yeah. that, and that became then a whole interpretive approach or an approach mm. to doing astrology um, in late 20th and early 21st century astrology in terms of using myth as a as a rich sort of resource and as a tool, both as a tool to to draw on in terms of past myths and using them in that way in a consultation in order to connect clients and, and help them to understand the archetypes that they were that were manifesting in their life or that they were dealing with. But also even in a more research oriented way, it became a a new principle. It was somewhat new to some extent, or at least I would argue that it was somewhat new where astrologers were developing new understandings of celestial bodies that were initially or sometimes solely predicated on the myth associated with the name that was assigned to the celestial body rather than let's say a different approach which should be more let's say empirical in terms of like looking at the transit of this planet happened to this point at this point in time and this event occurred and then developing or inferring what the celestial body means based on that, but instead astrologers often will first go to the myth and they'll say, you know, there's this new celestial body that's been called Sedna or mm. or Eris or what have you. And oftentimes now the first sort of access point for attempting to understand the meaning of the celestial body is what is the myth associated with that name under the premise that the name given to the planet was um not random, but instead through synchronicity or through what have you, that it was well given or, or given in a way that does actually invoke or match what the symbolic meaning of the celestial body is. Right. Yeah. I think this is such a great um, uh, piece that you're bringing in here because I do think the case, you know, with some of with the 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 main. Um, you know the the two lights and the five planets up until Saturn obviously are on point, and we have you know a couple thousand years of uh, quantitative and qualitative um, research to to have us understand this. And so there is this sense that wow, it's just amazing the synchronistic or the synchronicity that led to the naming of those planets to those particular divinities and all of that. And you're you're. 
your point is also um, very apt, I think, and and um, which is um, at the same time we have to stay very um, open and aware of the phenomenological evidence or data that shows up when we're looking at the influence or effect of certain planets or asteroids or whatever that is. And I think a really beautiful example of this um, work is Rick Tarnas's slender volume, Prometheus the Awakener. Are you familiar with this? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So basically, he does what you were, um, you know, in a way suggesting, which is Uranus, in many ways, is not really a great name or a great god for the Uranian planetary effects. Uh, they, they don't really square to one another. And so, you know, right. um, or that, that's the thesis of his argument, at least. Right. And so he, 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 um, instead looks to Prometheus. So drawing very heavily on biographical, uh, data and sketches, um, you know, looks at the Uranian effect as really being more, um, evocative of a Promethean archetypal pattern. Um, and I think it's, it's, um, you know, wonderful and, um, and deep, you know, at the same time. So, um, so there's both. So I, I think I, 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 I at, that, at least that's how I heard you, that there's a sense of, we have to kind of hold both the, 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 the um, at times the, the, the fittedness, the rightness between the naming and the um, uh, kind of characteristics or qualities or energy, however you will, of that particular astrological factor. Um, but we also have to really pay attention to its um, lived experience. And, and, you know, does that make sense? Right. Well, it's one of the interesting legacies of Jung in pioneering the mythological approach is that astrologers sometimes would take, uh, it's, it's become like a mainline interpretive principle, but sometimes it's it proceeds or is taken to extreme instead of any sort of empirical observation. But the pioneering of that approach over the course of the past century has had that as an interesting side effect. But then when you mm-hmm. run into instances like Tarnas's argument about about Uranus and where he basically, as you, as you just said, he basically argues that the myth of Uranus doesn't actually match the astrological interpretation of this body, but instead the myth of Prometheus matches much better the sort of interpretive value that astrologers have empirically found to be associated with that planet. But then that raises the question, does that mean then that not all myths that you know are associated with certain celestial bodies will synchronistically be appropriate? And therefore, if that's the case, that raises a whole uh, philosophical and sort of practical issue about what's become a mainstream assumption that that most contemporary mm-hmm. astrologers make about your starting point for generating astrological significations based on mythology. Right, and you know, not to you know throw another you know uh, thing in the pot here, but I think you know it's also often much more rich when talking with people about their experience when I'm working with the client that. 
I'm not necessarily talking about the myth of Saturn in relationship to a Saturn transit that they're experiencing, but rather some other mythic figure who um, is very evocative of, you know, the sense of um, of kind of discipline and um, a sense of really, you know, needing to stay with fundamentals and be sorting and seeding things. Because there are other figures and stories that um, give form to that particular archetype. And so I think it's important to be um, more multiplicitous. And even in the way that we mythologically amplify um, the planets or the asteroids. Sure, that makes sense. Well, maybe we could do yeah. a follow-up discussion on some point about the the use of mythology as an interpretive principle in astrology, and we could like expand upon that more. Yeah, I'd love that because I think another thing that fits into that is the, you know the inclusion of feminine figures, you know, feminine figures in relationship to you know what we generally characterize as masculine gods, and you know, so yeah, I'd, that would be fun. Right. That's been one of the big, uh, that was one of the points I think Demetra George made early on in her work of the asteroids was that mm. the majority of the planets were ma- named after men and therefore, or, or were ascribed male deities. And there were only two, at least female deities, which is the moon and, and Venus. And it's, it was only with the discovery of the asteroids over the past few decades that suddenly we've started to have female celestial bodies or drawing on the mythology of those. Right, but there are many different figures that we could talk about as being Jupiterian that are feminine. Um, you know, I mean, just think about Demeter. You know, this 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 mother nurturing goddess of the grain. All she wants is for things to grow. I mean, if we just look at her her values, we could say, wow, there's something very Jupiterian about that. And then for, you know, in relationship to someone's chart or their, their particular situation, that might be so much more of a, um, a, a connecting figure for them to kind of think about rather than talking about Zeus and, you know, whatever he's getting up to. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Okay. Yeah. That actually makes a lot of sense. So, so not adopting too strict of a, of an approach to only sticking with the mythology of, you know, one mythology, but instead the the multivalent nature of of different planetary archetypes can lend itself towards, you know, using different myths that are actually appropriate within the sim- symbolism of a planet. Exactly. Got it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense actually, and that that would broaden and and sort of resolve that issue that that Tarn for me that Tarnus's argument about Prometheus brought up, which is. You know, just you know, what are the implications of that? If if something's almost been you know misassigned to mythology, you might say, right? And you know, if we're talking about archetypal patterns, how could we even you know consider limiting the the whole constellation of what we would call Saturnian experience to one myth, right. one figure? You know, well, I mean that that seems very reductive in some way. Um, so, so isn't it more rich to become more connected to the qualitative characteristics and to begin to identify those in many different valences, many different figures sure. and styles of expression? So to me, that's a really, that's what I, when I talk about archetypal astrology, that's what I'm, 
To me, that's, that's an archetypal approach. So that you're following the archetype. You're not getting caught in one figure that renders it. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. All right. Um, well, I think that starts to bring us to the end of this discussion. So um, are there any points about Jung? I mean, to sort of wrap it up, Jung, you know, eventually he, he passed away in, in 1961 and his work has had profound influence on a number of different fields, but, uh, but especially astrology, I think, as we've gone through some of these different topics, we've started to see and I think people who who get this book, and I would, I would highly recommend that all astrologers do get this book because I think it's going to become a core sort of assigned or required reading text for most astrologers in their library in order to understand you know, the true foundations of modern astrology and many of these concepts that we're talking about and using or, the, or that we take a gr- for granted here, like the use of mythology or the use of archetypes or or references to synchronicity or what have you. Yeah, I mean, was that your intention or what was your intention with the book or did you have that was it more of like a just an odyssey that you went through and and where do you where do you feel like you ended up at the end? Well, I I I just want to say I I just really um thank you so much for what you just said. I that that feels so um affirming of what you know was the hoped for um end product, which was a book that felt um, like a real um, addition to, you know, understanding um, the perspective and and uh, influence of Jung on um, astrology in general. And, I mean, we, we did it also for the other side, which was for psychologists, psychoanalysts, Jungians, that were also um, looking for ways maybe to step more uh, fully into embracing the astrological tradition. You know, I, I just think there's so much that can be done uh, there as well. So we we hoping that it sort of spoke to both sides of the conversation. Um, Sure. Um, It'll so, certainly be harder, I think, for anyone who's interested in Jungian astrologies with this book out there to overlook or sort of ignore that component of Jung's thought now that it's all collected in, in a nice, concise, but relatively comprehensive volume like this. And I mean, the other thing that's really striking about it, just from an external observer standpoint, is you know, you are are two academics who are, are talking about astrology in a mainstream publication from a major publisher and you're you're talking very openly about the subject even though even despite that and also talking about it you're not downplaying it but it was I was almost struck a few times by how you were still talking about it as if it was a legitimate phenomenon even though you were talking to an academic audience and I realized part of that is because you can get away with that because it's in the context of talking about young who himself thought it was a legitimate phenomenon but I almost still would have thought that you would hold back a little bit more than you did from <laughs> treating it so openly or being so open about your own astrological views, both you and your co-author. So that was another interesting thing from like an academic standpoint is seeing some of the results of Tarnas's school and some of that work mm. that's happened and some of the results of that because astrologers have wondered for a while now what would be the results of some astrologers trying to push into academia and would any headway be made and this book is 
I think, easily one of the most notable developments in terms of that in, in quite some time. Mm, thank you. Uh, uh, that's yeah. Thank you very much for saying that. And I think you're right to sort of locate Tarnas in this sort of development. I, I think you're right that there there's a lot to be said about um, the impact of cosmos and psyche, um, and um, and I'm sure there are other factors too. But um, but you're you're painting a, a very persuasive picture. <laughs> sure. Well, well, I mean, because the thing yeah. about cosmos and psyche when it came out is we didn't know is this going to be the water, watershed moment where you know everyone starts taking astrology seriously and in, in some ways it was slightly disappointing because it, it wasn't but mm-hmm. one of the things that's really interesting in talking to you and now and seeing your work and seeing this book is his work did influence some people in a very significant way and did influence subsequent generations in a way that might not have been immediately clear or immediately perceptible but now we are starting to see the results of that and and it's a big deal. Yeah, it is. And I just want to say too, I mean your contribution um just with doing the podcast because of the way in which you um as I've already said a couple times, your your sense of the history and development of the study of astrology and the practice of astrology um and your interest in really drawing attention to that, contextualizing things. Um, I mean, it's a really important part of establishing um, this field um, in, in at these various levels, whether it's academic or it's more praxis oriented or more, you know, kind of more spiritually meaning oriented. Um, but, but I think, I feel like um, pieces are really coming together to shift the field in a new way or to give a f- um i don't know i think something's afoot <laughs> i guess in the most kind of vague intuitive way that i can say that i that that we're we're coming into a new valence of talking about what we're doing um and and to me that's really exciting yeah definitely uh, i feel feel the same way um, all right. Well, I think this is bringing us to the end of this discussion. It's been a long, uh, winding sort of road, but I'm really <laughs> excited. I'm really glad that we got a chance to to do this today. So, so thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me um, on your podcast, Chris. It has been a, a wonderful experience. Awesome. So, uh, let's talk a little bit. Uh, so, where people can find out more information about your work and some of the things that you're working on right now, or some of the things that you have coming up. So. Uh, you have a website, right? Yeah, I have a website. Um, it's thearchetypaleye.com. Um, and I um, have a blog where I'm doing some occasional writing. I also do uh, uh, astrological consultations um, so people can find more information about those things uh, by visiting my website. Um, and I also uh, have a new article in this uh, newest edition of the Mountain Astrologer, um, so people can check that out if they wanted a, a sense of. Uh, it's not about Jung; <laughs> uh, it's about Neptune and the myth of Ariadne. So, kind of harkening back to the last topic we touched on, looking at Neptune 
um, Neptune's influences from a, a feminine figure. Um, um, and lastly, I'm going to be at Norwalk, um, the Pacific Northwest um, Astrology Conference in March, and then also at the uh, um, UAC uh, United Astrology Conference in May in Chicago, where I hopefully will get to meet you in person. Brilliant. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's great. So you're, you're going to be speaking at that conference. So yeah, we'll actually meet for the first time there in, in Chicago in May. And what's your talk on that you're giving there? Um, I'm going to be talking about uh, James Hillman, the archetypal psychologist, and looking at how um, his major work, uh, Revisioning Psychology, which was written in 1975 and nominated for the Pulitzer um, how some of his ideas in revisioning psychology um, can really um, sort of open up our way of looking at um, um, astrology itself. So the way we practice from a more psychological perspective, but drawing on Hillman's work in particular. Brilliant. That should be great. I'm looking forward to that. I know a lot of people uh, who've been on the podcast over the years are going to be there at that conference, and and I'm really excited about it. Yeah, great. Um, and then I think your co-author uh, is doing a workshop here in March as well that I wanted to make sure we plug because he's giving a workshop on the archetypal archetypal nature of Neptune, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, Kieran's been doing um, a number of workshops on the transpersonal planets through the Institute of Transpersonal and Archetypal Studies. Um, and they have a website, it's itas-psychology.com, or just people can Google Institute of Transpersonal and Archetypal Studies. And then, um, so in March, the th 3rd and 4th, in Manhattan, he's going to be doing a workshop on Neptune. So some East Coasters might be keen to... Um, uh, do that, which would be terrific, of course. Brilliant. Yeah, I would definitely recommend checking that out, especially if any of the sort of approaches or concepts that we've talked about during the course of this episode have been interesting to anyone or or have been new concepts or things that you want to follow up on. I think the the work that both of you, you guys are doing really exemplifies a lot of um, the best threads of that. So I'd recommend people check out those events and check out those websites for more information. Great. Thank you. All right, and your book is titled um, "Young on Astrology." And uh, when was it published? Like, what was the actual? Is there a date? It was published in October of this past year, so it's only a few months old. Um, so, still fresh. Brilliant. Okay, and people can find that on Amazon or in fine bookstores everywhere. And I de definitely recommend people check it out. And then hopefully we can do a follow-up discussion at some point on the use of mythology and astrology. And I'll talk, try to talk with your co-author at some point about um, maybe doing an episode on synchronicity or something like that. Terrific. I, I, I really look forward to more conversations with you, Chris. This has been a great pleasure. All right. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining me. Uh, I think we'll okay. close up for the day. So thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time.